0: The Lymphoma Voices podcast brings you a series of conversations around topics of interest for people affected by lymphoma, the fifth most common cancer in the UK. Hello, my name is Anne Hook and I'm delighted to be joined today by John Patterson. Having met John some years ago, I was aware he was a lymphoma clinical nurse specialist, but what I hadn't appreciated at that meeting was that he is one of the longest survivors of lymphoma having been diagnosed nearly 50 years ago. I'm really looking forward to hearing about John's experience of lymphoma, including what's motivated him to work in this field and many other aspects of his life that are directly connected to his early experience of lymphoma. So welcome, John. Good morning, Anne, nice to be with you. Going back, can you tell me about your early diagnosis of lymphoma? It's actually 48
1: years since my diagnosis. So almost 50 years, but not quite. Uh, At the time, my parents were told that I would not survive, yet here I am, humbled to be one of the longest survivors of cancer in the UK today. Uh, It was May 1975. I had been living life to the full, socialising, watching live bands, Uh, in particular, a band called Hawkwind, who I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard of, and who I would travel around the country to see, and they would become an important part of my journey. And to be honest, I've been feeling fatigued for many, many good weeks, but I put it down to my travels around the country and perhaps the fact that I was admittedly dabbling with a few drugs at the time. Uh, I just want to be honest about that. i have lost weight. I didn't feel like eating. I was having these drenching night sweats. And I must have visited the GP on at least three separate occasions. And each time he said it was nothing to be concerned about. Although on my third visit, he said I was depressed. And he gave me a prescription for Valium. I knew I was not depressed. But he was the GP, so I took the prescription. And at the time, I was working in a local shipyard. And I was struggling with my work. One day I went into work and my job was in the bowels of the ship. And I was so fatigued. I actually fell asleep on the job itself. Uh, The next day, I simply could not get out of bed. Um, My mum called the doctor, the same doctor who declared I was depressed. He came in and said, ah yes, John has an appendicitis and he arranged a blue light to take me into the local hospital. Uh, Initially, I was found to be anemic and they arranged a blood transfusion. This was followed by a bone marrow investigation, various x-rays, and a biopsy of a lump in my neck. Once all the information was available, the diagnosis was a lymphoma. However, mum and dad wanted to protect me from the dreaded cancer diagnosis, and they colluded with medical staff to keep that diagnosis secret. How they thought they were gonna keep that from me when I was facing all of the brutal chemotherapy is, is beyond belief. I never understood or agreed with what they did, but there's no worse feeling in the world than being told that your child has a cancer diagnosis. So I did understand why they did that and tried to protect me. Mm. However, during the daily routine, the doctors prodding and poking, I overheard one of them mention that I likely had lymphoma, but as a naive and immature 18 year old working in a shipyard, that meant absolutely nothing to me. So during my time in hospital, I happened to be reading a a newspaper article about a national soap star he'd been diagnosed with lymphoma and i suddenly remember that that's what the doctor said i had so I thought i'll read a little bit more then i discovered that lymphoma of course was a type of blood cancer Um, i think i experienced a a kaleidoscope of emotional turbulence anger tears frustration and i recall thinking this can't be right no one's told me that that i have cancer all i knew about cancer was that you get a cancer diagnosis You had treatment and soon afterwards you died. An ignorant thought, I know that, but as a very immature naive 18 year old, that was my thought.
0: Gosh, how things have changed, I mean quite dramatically in terms of the way people are told and the fact that things are much more open, I mean that's really reflecting a a huge difference from then to, to, to what we have now. And do you know what type of lymphoma you had? Yes, I had Hodgkin lymphoma. And so you were in hospital and having treatment, and can you tell us a bit about that, how it went and what you what treatment you received, John? I think first and
1: foremost, because as you rightly say, and the treatment was so very, very different way back in 1975, the treatment, the chemotherapy was absolutely brutal. Now, I don't for a second want to underplay uh, the significance or the seriousness of a lymphoma diagnosis or indeed the treatment today, but it was brutal. And I'm, as I've already said, I'm not trivializing or suggesting treatment is not difficult to navigate, it is. But in the 70s, there was no anti-sickness medication other than metacropamide. And if that didn't work, then you got a little bit more metacropamide. So after my first, very first treatment, I headed home uh, and I'd been on steroids for a number of weeks. So therefore my appetite was voracious. When I got home, my mum had made one of her world famous mince plate pies. uh, And she said to me, how much of this mince pie do you want? I naturally said, all of it. (laughs) So Once I devoured that and I sat in the front room thinking that there wasn't a great deal to this chemotherapy, less than an hour later, my stomach started to gurgle and churn and I knew what was coming. I knew I was going to be sick. Now, that's a huge understatement, made my stomach feel as always turning inside out. Mm. And it made me unable to eat, fear in the sickness. My mental stability was just about destroyed. I'd never imagined anything like this before. And I I just couldn't believe that this was the way I was feeling. Mm. Very disillusioned. My greatest fear was the fact that I would be unable to face any more of this mental and physical torment. Yet, tearfully, I knew that I had no choice because this was really just the beginning. Mm. Um, I felt I was no longer in control of my body. It was being manipulated by the chemotherapy, leaving me feeling like a a drug-fueled robot. Mm. The treatment was planned to be repeated every 21 days, and yet of those days, only 10 days uh, were absent of these horrendous side effects. What what I would say um, is, although my treatment was decades ago, The psychological burden of any lymphoma diagnosis is absolutely immense. Uh, And it's no different today than it was almost 50 years ago. And I believe it it
0: deserves as much treatment as the physical aspects of the, the cancer diagnosis too. John, you were obviously a very young man at the time that you had your diagnosis. You explained how you were working on a shipyard, you were going out with mates. Can you tell me the effect of having a diagnosis when you were so young?
1: I'd always been something of a loner, although I had a good circle of friends, I was always someone who did things on their own. Uh, And I wondered who, if anyone could help me when my perception was I was dying of cancer. I was fearful of the permanent psychological damage that the lymphoma was causing. And of course, back in the mid seventies, there were no clinical nurse specialists. Certainly, when I would ask questions about my mortality or questions about whether or not I would get better, nurses, doctors didn't want to give me a direct answer. But there was always uh, a hidden veil of unanswered questions, which seemed to pester my subconscious mind every hour, every every day. Questions of uh, my own mortality and, and survival which created emotions that were completely diverse and unknown to my immature mind uh, and caused such fear that my optimism was indiscriminately cast aside and replaced by indecision and doubt. Um, After my very first relapse, I knew that my life was balanced on a a knife edge. And I think it's important to, to be honest and say that after that first relapse, was my first temptation of suicide, um, but further down the line in my uh, pathway, my journey, temptation was, was often there, luring me towards its irreversible embrace. I recall a, a, a darkness, a darkness that lurked in the canyons of my mind and which returned on many occasions. As I said, my, my inspiration initially was the music of Hawkwind, However, as a young boy, I was always interested in the uh, Native American Indians. Uh, when my, my dad and I would uh, watch Westerns, I was always on the side of the, the Indians. Uh, but my mum's sister um, lives in North Carolina, and my mum had obviously told her about my, uh, my lymphoma diagnosis, and they had been corresponding. And one day, completely by surprise, the postman brought me a large package. Uh, there was some Indian memorabilia in there, but also in there was a book called "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Uh, and during my visits to hospital, the book would go with me and I would read it over and over again. It was a chronicle of the oppressed Native American Indians, particularly the Lakota Sioux Nation. And I promised myself that if I was fortunate enough to survive, then one day I would visit Wounded Knee, which is in South Dakota in America. And yet, despite feeling very much alone, reading this book kind of changed that and I was mentally strengthened by the thought that I was accompanied on my journey by the Lakota Sioux, allowing me to dismiss the weakened, destructive thought of suicide. Mm -hmm. So in November uh, 1976, after my third relapse, and as the, the bulk of the disease was in my chest, it was decided to treat the lymphoma with radiotherapy. I'm a big believer in fate. Rather bizarrely, um, as people who've undergone radiotherapy will know, I had my skin marked with red ink. Um, having my skin painted as such, I felt similar to a Sioux warrior, which kind right. of amused me. Um, although at that time, I felt I was anything but a warrior, not at all. However, this was another link to my Lakota friends who essentially knew nothing about my plight or their hidden support during the, the psychological battle that I was going on. In addition to that, I felt that my adolescence had been taken away from me as I was unable to get out and socialise with my friends. I was now unable to see Hawkwind. I couldn't even go and see Newcastle United play or very seldom could I go and see them play. My circle of friends were generally very, very supportive and indeed protective. Later in months to come when I was able to get out and strong enough to socialise, the lads would without any exception always demonstrate Big Brother protection. Uh, And I very much appreciated that. It did, however, demonstrate that my adolescence, it wasn't my own. And I kind of resented that. I resented the lymphoma because clearly I wasn't able to do the things that normal young adolescents did. Mm. And then after my fourth relapse, my parents were once again told that I wouldn't survive. They were told that the lymphoma would take my life. And uh, the symptoms that I was having they wanted to initiate palliative chemotherapy which would resolve the symptoms. I wasn't aware of this terminal diagnosis at the time and to be honest, Dan, I don't know how I would have responded to that. Would I have said, given the traumatic experience I've had so far, would I have accepted palliative chemotherapy?
0: I guess that's a, a real paradox, I don't know. Mm. You've talked about four relapses John, when you had your first set of chemotherapy did you manage to get into a remission or was it that the lymphoma just was stubborn and kept coming back quite quickly each time
1: again i should really be totally honest here and say because i struggled both physically and mentally with the chemotherapy on the first occasion when i went back to the second cycle i was so tearful and so emotional knowing what was coming that they abandoned the treatment and had me admitted to Newcastle General. So the remainder of cycles were given as an inpatient. After my fifth cycle of treatment, the lumps and bumps, the swollen lymph nodes had long gone. That started to put a little bit of weight on. Uh, Rather foolishly, I felt that the lymphoma was now gone. As I say foolishly, I decided I wouldn't have any more treatment and I never turned up for my sixth cycle of, of chemotherapy. Clearly, after a number of weeks, the hospital got in touch. My GP came to visit me, and my mum and dad found out about that. They were very tearful. When they became tearful, I became tearful. I realised how silly I'd been. Uh, And when I went back for my sixth and final pulse of chemotherapy, uh, it was then that the consultant sat on the bedside and said that um, it wouldn't be going ahead because the lymphoma was still active, it was still evident. And they changed the chemotherapy. So I, I kind of, after the first relapse, went on to a second lot of chemotherapy. Um, after that, I had six months of, re- of remission before mm. it came back again. Then had another form of treatment, which was uh, bleomycin as an intramuscular injection and oral cyclophosphamide. And I think if I recall rightly, about seven months remission before once again it returned uh, mainly in my chest and that's when I had some mantle radiotherapy and that was completed in the January of 1977 uh, and then in the March of 77 uh, it came back again which is when my parents were told that the treatment would be
0: palliative because there was thought that we could no longer cure my lymphoma. Clearly the lymphoma did get under control but how did that happen John because it sounds like it a- At that point in January, things were looking very bleak for you. So what happened? How did they manage to control it? They started, as I
1: say, I I wasn't told that the plan was palliative chemotherapy. And despite the fact that I'd struggled to cope with the treatment uh, physically and mentally, I had so much to live for. Um, But they initiated palliative chemotherapy uh, and that resolved the symptoms that I was having. They used a drug called vinblastine, uh, oh. vinblastine which was given uh, once weekly depending on, upon my blood counts. Um, and it, it continued for approximately 10 weeks, after oh. which time I was admitted back into Newcastle General. Uh, this was at a time when we didn't have CTs or MRI scanners. So I had a full week's worth of investigations uh, to determine whether or not I was in remission and whether or not there was active lymphoma there. Again, kind of strangely, I got these weird thoughts into my mind. I thought to myself, the consultant knows how important it is that I have all of these results. So when I finished all of the investigations, they told me to attend back to South Shield's Diagnostic Centre 10 days later for all of the results. Because I got it into my mind that he would ring me one night with the results, He'd never rang me before at home. Consultants don't do that. They certainly no. didn't do that back in the 70s. So the nearer it got to the time that I had to go back to the hospital and I hadn't been contacted by anyone, I got it in my mind that it was going to be bad news. So when I traipsed along to my appointment for the results, I'd gone along to the blood room and the consultant at the time had uh, contacted the blood room and said, when John Patterson comes for his bloods, take his bloods and just give me a quick ring. So they did my bloods. uh, And as I was walking, um, feeling very, very sorry for myself, feeling very forlorn, expecting this to be bad news, the door of the consulting room just opened. And this is is where it gets a little bit emotional. (coughs) Um, Dr. Askinson opened the, the door and he stood there. He flung his arms in the air Uh, and he called out you're clear all bloody clear and that was that was just i mean i just didn't know how to respond to that and he took my hand and and he shook it like a friend uh, Mm. and i was just completely speechless i didn't know how to respond to that um but that was yeah that was such an emotional day
0: gosh and and i can hear that even after you know nearly 50 years later it still is very emotional it's the strangest emotion ever i,
1: I mean I, i've done presentations for healthcare professionals and when i talk about that i don't know why but it, it just it just conjures up these emotions it's it's a very very strange thing
0: mm. and i guess not many people who you know were as young as you were face the reality of what you were facing and it wasn't just the physical you've spoken very openly about your mental struggle at this time and you know, I'm sure a lot of people identify with that. And you were in a situation where it looked like everything was looking very bleak in terms of treatment. So it's fabulous to be able to talk to you all this yes. time later. But the journey didn't end there when you were in when you were told that it was clear because when we last mentioned it, you were working in a shipyard. That's right. And I know you became a lymphoma clinical nurse specialist. So how did that happen? And was your diagnosis instrumental in that?
1: Not at that point. Um, I started, as you say, working life uh, in a shipyard as a welder. But after my chemotherapy started, the, the management uh, called me into the office on one occasion and they told me that because of the chemotherapy because of my cancer diagnosis, my lymphoma, uh, they wanted to move me from um, the fabrication shed where I was, as I say, a welder in lots and lots of fumes, Uh, And they moved me into a more environmentally friendly environment, if you like. So I was moved into the drawing office by management, where I stayed until I left the shipyards in 1985. And to be honest, I had so much respect for the doctors and nurses. I felt it was something I would very, very much like to do. However, I was not prepared at that moment in time to leave my relatively well-paid job in the shipyard and, and start nursing until fate eventually interrupted my life once again. Because of all the treatment that I'd received, I was infertile. And my first wife and I adopted a little girl called Donna, who brought so much joy, but also so much heartache, as children do, into my life. And once we adopted Donna, it appeared as though life was going as it should in the early 80s. Uh, That was until I discovered a lump on Donna's arm in which the GP insisted was an infection. However, after a week's worth of antibiotics, uh, this lump was no different. So I went back and again, he just said it hasn't responded to the infection, so will give us more antibiotics. A week later, it was no different, and I thought I need to, to do something about this. So I took her along to the accident emergency department. Um, we were seen by a paediatrician who looked at Donna and said, you know, she's running around there playing with your kids. There's not a great deal uh, wrong with her." So they did a few blood tests. And once again, they found that Donna was also anemic as well. So they decided to admit her for a week's worth of uh, investigations. She too had this lump on her arm, which they biopsied. Um, she was sent home uh, and we were asked to attend a week later for the results. When we went in to see that Pediatrician, and again I make no apologies for saying this, but he said without any compassion, without any empathy, he simply blurted out, Donna has lymphoma. And at that point, I just thought my world was falling apart. Donna was subsequently transferred to the Royal Victoria Infirmary in Newcastle, where she too would have uh, chemotherapy. She had nine months of chemotherapy. And I have to say, as hard as it was for me to accept and, and tolerate chemotherapy. I would have happily taken the chemotherapy on her behalf mm. uh, if that had been possible. Mm. After nine months, Donna was getting infection after infection, losing weight. Uh, she had a lumbar puncture, which sadly revealed that she had progressive disease. And as parents, we were then told that there was nothing more that could be done for Donna. My world was now in tatters. Mm. Um, and I didn't know which way to turn. It was then that I, I left the shipyards in order to spend uh, the time that we had left with Donna. And for almost six months, we, uh, we were back and forwards to the RVI, the Royal Victoria Infirmary for uh, blood and platelet transfusions. Until one day we went in to see the haematologist. who also had a consultant oncologist in with him. Uh, and after examining Donna and reviewing her bloods, he just looked at us and told us that he had no idea what had happened but Donna went, had gone into a spontaneous remission, where she remains to this very day. Later, uh, she went on to become an international swimmer, uh, achieving two silver medals at the World Swing Championships in New Zealand in 1998, making me the proudest dad in the world. Did I want to put the lymphoma experience behind me? To be honest, no. The traumatic journey of my diagnosis, followed closely by Donna, has made me who I am today. Uh, and more importantly, I wanted to put something back into the system. So I started my nurse training in 1989. I worked on Ward 38 at Newcastle General, where I had so much of my treatment before managing a chemotherapy department uh, in Sunderland, then worked as a chemotherapy nurse specialist in the community. But for the past 20 years, I was senior nurse specialist in haematology and also head of service for haematology at my local hospital. South Pineside, the very same hospital that
0: made my diagnosis almost 50 years ago. Goodness. You know, you must have seen so many changes over the years from the time that you and Donna had your treatment to to how it is today. And can you reflect on some of the things that you think are notably different?
1: Yeah, I think we've come an awful long way, thankfully. Certainly um, the survival curve particularly for many of the lymphomas um, and certainly in Hodgkin lymphoma, which is very, very favorable prognosis these days. The treatments have changed dramatically, not just the the types of drugs we use, the monoclonal antibodies, uh, the immunomodulatory drugs that we use. uh, Many of the drugs that were given to me many years ago are not uh, um, used any longer. Other issues include the way we can now Um, successfully combat some of the potential side effects of the drugs but also very importantly we've recognized the psychological burden of not just a lymphoma but a cancer diagnosis generally and we now have um, exceptional clinical specialists working in all disciplines of cancer not least in in lymphoma so that's a very very important stride forward.
0: Yeah and I want to come on to side effects and your own personal experience of those, but I just also want to ask you how you felt that having had such an experience of lymphoma, do you feel that it changed the way you perhaps looked after patients?
1: Yeah, I think undoubtedly it did. However, I don't think I am any different from any of the other clinical specialists, but I think I do operate in a different way, or should I say, I did operate in a different way. Uh, My empathy, compassion, Um, And clearly an understanding of the diagnosis and the psychological burden that was uh, as important to treat as the physical element of of any cancer as well. I think understanding that we're all very different and therefore we all cope and don't cope. And that was certainly significant in in my uh, diagnosis in different ways. And I think you have to respect that. One of the important points I always raised with individuals whenever I was breaking bad news to patients was the fact that in my personal view the lymphoma doesn't just belong to the individual it belongs to the entire family and those people um, who are close to you and and love you and support you. One of the very strange emotions uh, is survivor guilt. Whenever um, I was breaking bad news to patients and their loved ones, I always had a feeling of guilt, the guilt that here I am all these decades after my own treatment, and now having to tell these people that they were unlikely to survive their cancer. So there's always been a a difficult emotion for me to understand and and deal with, and it's it's one of those strange
0: situations, I guess, uh, survivor guilt. And not only the survivor guilt, but I'm guessing with all that treatment that you've had, you have got some long-term side effects?
1: So because of the mantle radiotherapy that I had, I now uh, suffer with pulmonary fibrosis, which tends to affect me more in the colder months, which essentially means that my inhaler is always in my pocket, um, or it's supposed to be always in my pocket. There are occasions when I go out and I get a little bit short of breath, uh, and I find that I've got no inhaler with me. Uh, And that's normally when I get a little bit of a a rebuke from my wife for not having it with me. Other issues, I have an underactive pituitary gland, uh, which requires me to receive uh, daily hormone medication. Because of all the steroids that I had, I now have osteoporosis. But again, that doesn't really cause me a great deal of problem other than needing to take medication. Um, I've had um, a small cancerous tumour removed from my stomach some years back Uh, in 2019. It was uh, discovered that I had a bladder cancer, almost certainly because of the cyclophosphamide that I received back in the 70s. And we do know that cyclophosphamide uh, is eurotoxic. But just being here, beating the odds is not without its challenges. I still endure moments when a cloak of darkness overcome my thoughts. I get plunged into an unexplainable, low mood. I say unexplained because life presently couldn't be any better. Um, Family life is great. There is nothing more important in life than family. I can recommend retirement, and I get to travel to America at least once a year. But the moments of blackness control my sanity, thoughts that I I just really struggle to control. That said, I do truly appreciate how lucky I am and not a day go by when I don't appreciate, feel very humbled uh, and acknowledge that I am very, very fortunate. Over the years I've, I've written dozens of articles for national and international nursing and in medical Press, presented lectures, the length and breadth of the country on many as- aspects of haematology and cancer management. I'm honored to have won numerous awards both locally and nationally for my work in both oncology and haematology. Yet my greatest achievement is, without doubt, survival. Almost 50 years ago, I was the terrified patient, but only a few months ago, I was the nurse specialist, brimming with confidence and pride, prescribing Mm -hmm. chemotherapy, breaking bad news to those individuals who had the same
0: cancers as both myself and and Donna. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this book that you've written? Is this a way of expressing your feelings? Is it a book about lymphoma in your experience? Yeah, so it's called Me
1: and My Shadow, Memoirs of a Cancer Survivor. And it ultimately has three aims. First and, and foremost, it's aimed at offering hope and inspiration to anyone touched by a cancer diagnosis. Secondly, as an educational resource for healthcare professionals looking after cancer patients. And even today, it's respectfully my view that some of those nurses don't always understand the psychological burden uh, of a lymphoma diagnosis. And thirdly, as a catharsis, it was meant to rid the demons that still lurk in the canyons of my mind and remind me how lucky I am. Uh, lymphoma has played such an important part my life and has presented many difficult challenges, but probably as hard as it is to understand, it's also given me many positives. It's caused me to reflect on my own mortality, to focus on what is and what's not relevant in my life, enabled me to recognize the difficulties that others face and the fact that each of us are unique. Looking back, I was able to to find strength like so many others do, uh, and look forward to tomorrow
0: thank you for telling us about your book called me and my shadow john can you tell us where people may be able to um, purchase that if they'd like to read it um, so my
1: website has a link on to purchase the book and that is www.johnwpatterson.co.uk but it's also available worldwide all the usual retailers can i hasten to add Uh, If anyone reads my book, then please take from it, hopefully inspiration, what you you can, but feel free to criticise it where you feel necessary, because it's not a prescriptive guide as to how any individual should deal with a lymphoma diagnosis, because quite simply,
0: no such prescription exists. John, you've written your book, Me and My Shadow, but you also mentioned to me that you've also been writing children's books as well. So can you tell me a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so when I retired last year, um, I clearly needed a a focus um, to keep myself occupied. And I've always described myself as an elasticated grandpa. So I've always told my grandchildren how I capture the Loch Ness Monster before letting them go again. How I've climbed Mount Everest barefoot and captured the abominable snowman, letting him go again. How I trained Tarzan to survive in the jungle. So all of these kind of things um, my my wife had suggested I should should put into into a book. So I wrote my very first book um, last year when I retired, Strange Trips and Weird Adventures. Uh, When I had the bladder cancer, our youngest grandson, Daniel, was had come along just at the right time. So he was so inspirational um, for me that I decided that the books would all include myself and Daniel, uh, and Daniel calls me Papa. So all of the books are about Daniel and Papa and their exaggerated adventures. So the first book, we go off to the moon, then we get attacked by a giant squid uh, and captured in a deathly stranglehold before going to the Arctic Circle. And then finally, Daniel gets a magic pair of football boots. On the 16th of this month, my next book, Blankensop, Blabbermouth and the Ghost of Broderick McAfee comes out. And I'm currently working on the fifth, Luna von Buehler, the mystical mouse from Missoula.
0: They sound fascinating and I can imagine children absolutely loving them. But then just going back to the very beginning, uh, Anne, if I may... Uh, What about Fortwyn in
1: 2006 and again in 2007? Because the band were aware aware of my history and my diagnosis, I actually joined the band as part of the road crew, used my holidays to travel around the country, much to my wife's disgust. Uh, But very importantly, in 2007, when they played at Donington Festival, I actually played on stage with the band. They have a track called 10 seconds of forever and it's all about the universe i rewrote the lyrics to that number to reflect the first 10 seconds of a cancer diagnosis uh, and i played on stage with hawkwind but wow. much much more importantly than that more significantly um is to do with the lakota sioux nation because they were so inspirational for me during my treatment I got in touch with the tribal council and I spent in 2018. I spent a week on Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota with the Indigenous people who had unknowingly supported me through Life's Greatest Challenge. Um, mm. And
0: that was a real humbling experience. So, that obviously brings you an enormous amount of pleasure. And is it therapeutic as well? Do you feel in a way? It, it is very
1: therapeutic, yeah. Just to, to very briefly say that these people were, despite their oppression, um, very, very humble, um, very spiritual people as well. And yet they accepted me, uh, called me friend, brother, but it was just a very humbling experience. Yeah, and I, I got so much inspiration from them uh, during my, my difficult years.
0: John it's been an absolute joy speaking with you today and you know goodness you've had such an experience and it's a real privilege to hear all about it and thank you for sharing that so honestly we do have two extra questions we wanted to pose to you that we ask everyone who offers to share their story on a podcast and the first one John is what brings you joy? answer to that
1: question has got to be my grandchildren undoubtedly simple straightforward answer. We haven't heard about grandchildren, are these Donna's children? One of them is, yeah, Kieran is uh, Donna's son, but I I am remarried and I have uh, two stepdaughters um, who completely embraced me uh, as their father many, many years ago. uh, And we now have four additional grandchildren.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, I can see why that gives you so much joy. The other question is, what one thing helped you with your lymphoma and living with lymphoma that you could share with others? Um, As we've already
1: touched on, there would be no hesitation in saying that that would be the Lakota Sioux nation. The inspiration that I got through their spirituality, the way they faced adversity, was just a real humbling experience. Today, living with my lymphoma, then again, the obvious answer would be my uh, my beautiful wife june she supports me even in my darkest times she reminds me how fortunate i am um, and i'm forever grateful for, for her there
0: john thank you so much for speaking with us today your story is fascinating humbling delighted you were happy to share your very honest experience so thank you very much for joining us today
1: Thanks, Anne. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Uh, Can I just say
1: that um, I do not believe that I am unique. Uh, I think as lymphoma and cancer patients, we all have a story to tell. Mine's just a little bit different from everyone else's.
0: For more information about lymphoma and the support we can offer to people affected by the condition, please visit the Lymphoma Action website at www.lymphoma-action.org.uk. Lymphoma Action, inform, support, connect.